Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity, recorded in the pod at White City Place. I'm David Michel. Today, our society faces quite a lot of challenges, many of them of our own making. The world's population continues to flood from rural areas into cities, often putting huge strain on their infrastructure. The Earth's climate is rapidly changing thanks to human activity and a lack of care, putting at risk our fragile ecosystem. One place where those two challenges intersect is mobility, how we move around our cities and in between them, and the new designs and technologies that are improving transportation or making it redundant. In the pod today, the director of the Design Museum of London and the director of the LSE Cities Research Centre at the London School of Economics. I'm Dan Sujic, director of the Design Museum in London. And I'm Philip Roder, the executive director of LSE Cities at the London School of Economics. Dan has been director of the Design Museum in London since 2006, with a career that has spanned journalism, teaching and writing. He was director of the Venice Architecture Biennale and was editor of esteemed architecture and design magazine Domus from 2000 to 2004. He was also the founding editor of Blueprint magazine, where he worked from 1983 to 1996, and has published many books on design and architecture. Philip is executive director of LSE's Cities and associate professorial research fellow at LSE. As a researcher, consultant, and advisor, he has been directing interdisciplinary projects comprising urban governance, transport, city planning, and urban design at LSE since 2003. He is currently co-directing the city's workstream of the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate and has co-led the United Nations Habitat 3 Policy Unit on Urban Governance. Philip, we're talking this morning because we're both going to Milan um, at the end of October to take part in um, NEXT, a conference organised by um, Italian industry Alta Gamma. And we're trying to, in that conference, explore um, three or four key themes about where the world is going. A key one which you'll be talking about is mobility. So I thought I might ask you today why here we are in White City, uh, why you chose to come here by public transport. So on this occasion, it actually is a brutally um, efficient decision. Looking at uh, my city mapper application telling me that uh, coming from East London to West London at this time of the day, it's just uh, the smart choice. Uh, otherwise, I may have been stuck in traffic. And for you, the car is basically a city killer. I think if we add to the car the conventional privately owned car, I think I would subscribe to that um, idea. Um, I think uh, if we're moving towards the definition of a car as a vehicle which transports people, uh, there are many, many opportunities of redefining it and making it far more urban agreeable. And you're interested not only from the point of view of what it's like to live in cities, but of course its impact on our climate. That's correct. And um, the transport sector more generally, not just in cities, although the city space and the urban transport space may be our best opportunity to do something about uh, climate change, because this is where the technologies exist and where the alternatives are in place. The transport sector should possibly worry us the most, maybe alongside food, because it's the most rapidly growing sector when it comes to carbon emissions. So whereas industry and buildings and other areas we have seen, at least in developed world 
countries and cities a reduction of uh, CO2 emissions. In the transport sector, that has not been the case. And in some countries, that growth of emissions is exponential. So it is deeply worrying. And you've done some interesting work on what people actually do with their cars. I think you once suggested to me that uh, um, cars, for most of the day, sit there unused and unoccupied. Yes, that's correct. And the one statistic that has become very popular, actually out of the United States, is that it's uh, 95% of the time vehicles, privately owned vehicles, cars, uh, stand around doing nothing for uh, their owners. And part of that time when they do use them is spent looking for a parking place. That's correct as well, or being stuck in traffic. Do you think that, um, I mean... People sometimes say that London is actually tackling these issues better than some places. We have uh, emission zones. We have um, restrictions on driving into the city centre. We have a reasonably integrated Transport for London network, which is, seems to have done some good work in, in how public transport is used, here, is used here. I think that must be true. I mean, London is uh, partially also by necessity, and I think that's often less reflected about Uh, having to embrace alternative modes to the vehicle. And when I say uh, out of necessity, it's because in the 70s we decided not to bulldoze inner parts of the city and build a mature urban motorway system. So if you compare uh, London uh, to Paris and you look at the amount of road space available, particularly in the inner city, there is a considerable constraint in London which is far greater than what we have seen in other, even European cities. So out of that necessity, the city relies traditionally on public transport and walking and is now increasingly experimenting with micromobility, with cycling and, of course, with the shared mobility revolution. But technology is also having some unexpected, unintended consequences. I think you also have done research into what Uber is doing into uh, road traffic usage. We would imagine that being able to use a taxi on demand would actually reduce car journeys, but it isn't. Uh, That's correct. Now, a lot of this research actually doesn't come uh, through our own work, but uh, there's very good uh, empirical work being conducted primarily in the US, uh, and that's a specific context, where we are seeing that... uh, In the Bay Area, for example, the use of Uber uh, is eating into public transport trips rather than replacing conventional car trips. And that is, uh, uh, of course, a worrying finding. We are also uh, sort of seeing in London a significant increase in congestion partially induced by these new type of uh, shared vehicles. Uh, It's not yet entirely understood to what extent. Uh, This is just uh, more of that type of mobility and to what extent it's coming out of former bus journeys or former tube journeys. But there is certainly a already big warning signal that we uh, need to follow up on that development and not take it for granted that it's doing good for our cities and for the mobility system as a whole. And I think it's actually having impacts not just on what happens on our roads. It's, uh, I mean, I think Uber is come clean that it actually is planning to make its money, not so much by taxi journeys, but by food delivery. And food delivery has all sorts of strange effects. It's, you could say it's killing restaurants, it's killing home cooking. We are retreating to our sofas and uh, eating stuff which is prepared not in restaurants, but in those so-called dark kitchens positioned uh, on the M25 around London. Mm. I think that's a, a important observation. You could argue that deliveries per se are quite anti-urban. Uh, They uh, allow us to cocoon ourselves at home, 
no longer engage with the city as a collective territory and just wait for the doorbell ringing to then uh, open the latest package of consumer satisfaction or indeed food or whatever it may be. Uh, so that is a development which in many ways goes uh, contra to the rediscovery of the city and uh, what have what many urbanists have, of course, observed that there is a new attraction and a much broader appeal of urban living and embracing of the urban condition in OECD country cities. But deep down, the car is still presented as being about freedom and that's a very hard message to combat or to shift perceptions. Yes, and I think we have to become uh, slightly uh, or more clever about accepting that attraction and working with it. Uh, when the automobile was invented and the way it was marketed 100 years ago and it started entering cities, uh, initially it was actually seen as uh, a rural mode of transport. It was, a, was even advertised uh, with uh, beautiful rural settings uh, and being able to finally overcome greater distances, being able to free yourself from proximity and from the overcrowding in cities. Well, Henry, thought he'd, Henry Ford thought that he designed the mass car. Actually, he designed the traffic jam. <laughs> That's also correct. And uh, so the result is this vast spatial uh, dispersal and in some ways, there's a great consistency between more suburban, maybe also partially more rural living and uh, and car ownership. What we're now seeing is, on the one hand, a desire to return to the city, enjoy more urbane uh, environments, and then at the same time, not entirely being willing of letting go of a means of transport which wasn't designed for those environments. So there is a, a bit of a contradiction um, which we need to become more sophisticated about how uh, also for for consumers and their needs and their wants, uh, uh, how we can not only communicate uh, the question of social good, but how we can also communicate self-interest to them, what's in there for their own benefit, and maybe compensate for this uh, uh, sort of excitement of speed and the thrill of driving and being in control through more recreational moments which are happening outside the cities, maybe which happens also virtually. Um, I mean, there is that uh, car industry dream that the autonomous vehicle will offer us different kinds of autonomous experiences, that you will call up a car to have a date in or a car to have a meeting in or a car to read books in. Uh, do you buy that? Uh, so I can certainly see that that is a narrative which um, you, if you're sort of car executive um, and you're interested in really continuing to sell these vehicles, uh, that you would uh, at least start thinking along those uh, lines. Now, keep in mind that the autonomous vehicle initially uh, was perceived as an enormous threat to the main proposition car the car industry offered, which was the pleasure of driving, as BMW even used for many years as its main tagline. Um, recently, there was an ad, I believe, may have been another German car manufacturer, which said, enjoy driving while you can, uh, with the assumption that in 10 years, it may be over. So in the context of uh, taking away something quite importantly about the control and uh, the pleasure of driving, the thinking about, okay, what could it become and still maintain the role as a privately owned 
maybe movable living room becomes an attractive idea. But it's entirely deprived of any thought in relation to the infrastructures these vehicles will have to use, in relation to the settlement structures where people will be happy to live in, uh, and then possibly most importantly in relation to the energy and climate equation. It's like cigarette companies looking to a post-tobacco future, you think? That Yeah, that analogy is used quite a bit. Uh, and, um, I mean, there are, of course, big differences. I think when we talk about tobacco, it is a pure uh, question of pleasure and uh, sort of enjoying and, and consumption. Uh, whereas in the case of uh, using vehicles and cars, I think we also must acknowledge that there is a rational side to it where people rely on these vehicles, where they may use them for also transporting goods, where they feel maybe in certain countries much safer in them. They see it as a protection device. So there are many quite rational points uh, that that are also added to this mix of choosing uh, that stuff. And, and job creators too. This, I mean, of course, um, car manufacturers have an enormous impact on efficiency. And it's interesting how you know, the last... Um, the last slump, uh, governments went from offering incentives not to drive to in- offering incentives to buy cars. It's not just there, though. It's, it's um, low-skilled jobs are now extraordinarily concentrated in the delivery business, and autonomous vehicles would also wipe out that job character, job uh, car- um, mm. category. Mm. Uh, I think uh, it, it's important to take that element of the debate extremely serious. I think we are seeing already now the political fallout of all sorts of uh, new inequalities, uh, the lack of employment opportunities, uh, which go far beyond specific industry sectors. Uh, And it is true that uh, certainly in in a couple of key countries, the wider uh, automotive industry and its ecosystem has been an enormous uh, player in, in the wide arena of, you know, equitable jobs. Um, Now, that's not to say that either at some point, maybe by uh, necessity, but ideally uh, through a designed um, uh, transition, we can uh, use some of those uh, jobs to produce goods and maybe also consumer items. And most importantly, maybe solutions, technical solutions, which are urgently needed, that that's an impossibility. Uh, in essence, I think we are dealing with um, with the difficulty of, of a transition which needs to be managed, which needs to be equitable, and where government needs to be extremely bold and also fair in terms of identifying where the victims, where the winners, how are we going to uh, compensate for um, perceived and actual losses. London is a fortunate city in many ways in that it is by world standards, quite a dense city. It's got uh, a history of 19th century and early 20th century investment in its transport infrastructure. It's done remarkably at bringing some of that back to life. But there are many parts of the world, um, at the moment affluent parts of the world, which are so sprawling that mass transit is quite hard. Do you have thoughts about possible solutions for how you turn the suburbs of Phoenix or... Um, the edges of Shanghai into places that can rely on mm. public transport. Yeah, it, it's a, it's an important observation, but let's put this into uh, perspective. I think the places you're referring to are essentially particularly North American uh, cities, Australian cities, 
maybe some cities in the Gulf region. Um, as soon as we move uh, uh, into India, into also China, and we look even at some of their newer developments, uh, the, the big uh, chunk of developments are comparatively uh, certainly higher density than American suburbia. But uh, the question remains, what uh, uh, should one do in in a suburban context uh, like we, we are seeing it, in whether it's in Arizona, in Texas, or uh, in California? And I think in those contexts, uh, the idea of um, autonomous driving, which um, would and could also be linked to significantly increasing the capacity of traffic flows by platooning technology and maybe even by multimodality where you have certain autonomous pods connecting at certain highway intersections with maybe higher capacity shared public, maybe even sort of elite public transport uh, is certainly something that's currently being uh, explored. I think if we see an aerial view of these vast urban motorways, some of them five, six lanes in one direction, and simply reflect on the fact that the current movement we are seeing there, even during peak hour, where the sort of most people are being moved along them, it rarely exceeds 5,000 person per hour in direction. Typically, it may be just around three. Now, that's what a London bus moves on a single lane. And that gives us a sense of the potential capacity increase we can we can really put forward with those physical infrastructures and corridors if we start employing new technology, uh, new also vehicle systems, uh, and that in turn will allow to maybe create along those spines of urban motorways uh, also new corridors of activity, start helping maybe in the long term restructuring some of those urban territories towards a more urbane environment, which continues to be, I think, quite an attractive proposition. You've just spent the summer in Colombia, a country which did pioneer the use of urban bus transport as opposed to investing in metro systems. Um, Is the metro ever worth the investment? Uh, I absolutely uh, think so. And I'm saying that because if you, uh, again, go back to many of the European uh, inner city dense areas, it is absolutely unimaginable uh, to uh, deliver the type of movement and and just the sheer number of people you want to pump in and out of these territories without uh, going one, two, three layers into the ground or in other cities maybe going one, two layers above ground. Uh, So this this is then uh, the the metro is your answer here. Uh, I think what's more importantly in the context of cities like in Colombia is at what point of uh, your increasing, hopefully increasing wealth curve and affluence, are you starting to build uh, underground trains? And uh, historically, there has been often, uh, and London, of course, has been ahead of the curve here, uh, a sweet spot whereby uh, labor costs for constructing these underground systems haven't been too high yet, where there was also uh, the political will to just go ahead with these mega projects. And, and at the same time where there was already a certain wealth available to invest. And I think there is indeed a risk if you now go to a very low-income country and you are proposing quite expensive metro systems where the technology often uh, comes from elsewhere uh, and with 10 kilometers of metro, uh, you could have built 100, 200 kilometers of high-capacity bus systems. And that's the, 
the, the conventional argument for these high-capacity bus systems or surface transport, which uh, should help uh, a lot of emerging economy cities in the interim to slowly increase the uh, capacity and often shift away from only relying on informal small microbuses. Uh, but I do also uh, believe that at some point, the introduction of then, um, and this could also be a digitally organized uh, uh, rail technology, i.e. platooning, where you just build longer uh, train sets, uh, or traditionally where you just convert all of this back to um, a conventional track-based system is important. If you were running the British government, which, given what's going on at the moment, is not entirely impossible, um, would you spend the money on HS2 and a, a heavy rail system? So as much as I'm a believer in investing into rail systems, I uh, would have on that particular occasion uh, certainly not started with a link between Birmingham and London, but very much in the spirit of recognizing that this country is highly unequal in terms of its uh, spatial development, I uh, would have uh, suggested to really start with those type of new rail links up uh, in uh, the region around Greater Manchester and maybe connect Manchester with Leeds and ensure that these regions themselves can profit from agglomeration effects. Uh, London has been profiting for a much longer time. And then uh, as they grow, eventually explore and re-explore the option of connecting uh, uh, a more so self-sufficient region uh, around Manchester, Greater Greater Manchester, uh, a region around, of course, the Midlands, uh, within the southeast. Um, I, I don't think we should rule out that that addition of capacity is important, and that's another very important rephrasing or reframing of the argument for high speed too. This is a capacity addition. It's not about speed. The speed improvements uh, nowadays where we can really work and use our time on trains productively uh, just doesn't add up when we do uh, economic analysis. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. In conversation is Design Museum Director Dayan Sujik and LSE Cities Director Philip Rhoda. What do you make of the Extinction Rebellion view of things, which is basically to say that things are so desperate that right now we've got to stop flying tomorrow, um, that things are so bad that it's justifiable to use drones to disrupt landings at Heathrow, um, even to um, block public transport systems in London. Are things that bad? I think things are desperately bad. And what is so uh, difficult for us sitting here in the sunshine where everything seems to be functioning is to appreciate uh, the level of uh, disturbance that in other parts of the world has just happened, uh, where you know, sort of the stronger effects of hurricanes and of droughts and of heat and is, is visible. Um, and of course, we know that these things happened in the past, but the frequency and the, the, the violence of those uh, frequent conditions are already increasing. But at the same time, most of us are incredibly comfortable. We are not confronted with this crisis. It's an entirely theoretical argument on paper written by scientists. 
But if we trust the science, and I think uh, that is, it's incredibly robust and very basic science. This is not quantum physics. It's very basic science. Some of those uh, laws of uh, the climate and the weather, they have been uh, around for a very long time. We now just have better modeling capacities to see also more localized effects. Uh, we are in an incredibly difficult uh, situation. Now, uh, the Extinction Rebellion has it in its uh, name that uh, it's mass extinction. I think what we should add to this is that, you know, there probably are going to be for the foreseeable future hundreds of years, certainly a certain group of humans that will make it. But it's a quick question of fairness and equity because there will, if we go on like this, many that will not make it. And often those are the people which are not... Um, uh, polluting at all or to a very limited degree. So there is a very important fairness uh, question. So back to your um, provocation about um, how do we then either uh, listen to Extinction Rebellion, support their actions. Um, I think as a uh, smart political movement, um, it's really central that they are able to continue creating a momentum where people accept uh, that their actions are uh, uh, proportionate with, with the threat. And I think uh, the actions that have been taken so far, with a few exceptions, but let's say particular ones in London, the blocking of central streets uh, and, and the gluing to buildings, uh, these have been actions that ultimately resonated and allowed a more public conversation to take place. Now, the specific question you ask is about how far you go in really uh, taking on flying. Uh, I think when we're talking about aviation, uh, most of us more privileged uh, uh, individuals will have to recognize that the, our individual carbon footprint related, related to aviation is possibly factor 10 to everything else. And that's a concern. So we're not talking about the again, uh, the equity of a person who, uh, who is able to fly maybe once a year or every other year. We're talking about extremely frequent uh, fly, flying, um, which makes up probably 75% of the uh, flown kilometers worldwide, frequent flyers uh, on a weekly basis, uh, often intercontinental flights. We're seeing aviation companies advertising now the short weekend trip uh, long distance to Cape Town to return with bragging rights in the office. Uh, of course, first class or uh, business class, which then again uh, is even extraordinary, more uh, carbon emission. Uh, I, I think to alert us to the problem of that type of um, consuming uh, mobility is critical. Uh, I am worried um, as a sort of recreational pilot myself, that people that want to disrupt aviation are um, maybe not entirely aware of the, the risks that may be associated within, with, with that. So that is uh, hugely uh, worrying. Uh, but to continue pushing very hard the narrative that uh, we really have to consider what journey, what trip, whether it's for business, for family, visiting friends, holidays, uh, are really uh, appropriate during this current climate emergency is central. And it's interesting. Um, people are migrating to meat-free diets almost apparently from their own accord. 
Who knows how these things are influenced? Um, they are migrating away from the idea of ownership of a car. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating. There's a place in Brooklyn in, in New York where uh, basically Mini, the German-owned car company, BMW, has set up uh, in a former laundry in Brooklyn um, a restaurant, co-working space, bookshop, as if Brooklyn needs another such thing, um, in which the word Mini is hardly mentioned. There's not a single car. You can buy a bicycle there. It's understanding that one day people are actually not going to buy cars. So, again, there's a sense that young people don't want to own a car. But they do want to go to Barcelona for the weekend and stay in an Airbnb. And how does one actually change that mindset? To me, it's a very similar mindset to the one which, you know, three decades of constant advertising make young people believe that the only way to drink pure water is from an Evian bottle rather than from a tap. And we should, of course, celebrate the tap and clean drinking water as the greatest imaginable luxury. So... How does one change those minds? And is it by people who tell us that we're all going to die if we don't stop doing this tomorrow? Uh, so you, you mentioned a cohort which seems to be already receptive to uh, the fundamental argument. Now, let's keep in mind that's not the majority uh, of the world population and certainly uh, also not even the majority uh, in places like London, as enlightened as the city may be. Um, I think for people that, that buy into uh, the urgency of climate, Uh, the um, the reminder of uh, just the actual uh, emissions, sometimes even translated into the, the amount of ice you're melting with this particular trip, uh, that's that's going to work. And and I've seen this working in practice. Uh, we are seeing amongst uh, professional colleagues, uh, amongst friends, a real attempt of reassessing uh, flying, of uh, using the trains uh, within Europe as much as possible. Um, and and uh, and uh, you may also be aware of this new wonderful German and Scandinavian term about flying shame, which, having spoken recently to a friend of mine who works for Swiss, is something that within the broader Swiss and Lufthansa group, it's starting to be a major conversation. Uh, they're trying to really get their head around how they're going to deal with that potential threat to their business model. Um, but uh, how are we communicating to those that, you know, quite frankly, on a daily basis are confronted with very different problems in their lives? Um, I think uh, the last 20 years have been quite um, clear uh, coming out of the environmental and also environmental economics movement that we must not scare, that we must offer Uh, an attractive uh, way of transitioning towards a world which, where, where self-interest uh, is part of the equation. And uh, that has been successful to some degree. In politics, we have been talking about co-benefits. If we go more carbon uh, towards a more carbon-friendly city, it will be a city that is also healthier, more attractive to children, that will be more beautiful. Um, and uh, all of this did make a difference We are now finding ourselves in a situation where we're seeing that that difference this has made isn't anywhere close enough. So the emergency narrative and the mobilization narrative is back on the agenda. And uh, people are, of course, aware that pure panic doesn't work. But this uh, wonderful, um, I guess, uh, analogy of the house is on fire Uh, by Greta Thunberg, as she often refers to it. The house is on fire. What are we doing? You, yeah, I mean, she even said, I want you to panic. I don't think that's what she means literally. I think 
what the, the movement is trying to establish is to create a, the sense of urgency in a moment where the, the threat isn't visible, and we're doing that by communicating it. And crucially, we have to talk about solutions. Uh, we cannot just, uh, as you say, just talk about doom and gloom and the horror figures. They're always in those sentences that alert us to the threat. There needs to be uh, a proposition about what is uh, a possibility of, um, of, of also partially realistic change. And uh, I think over the next five to ten years, this may be, you know, forget about Brexit. That's a minor challenge by comparison if we're just thinking about the kind of uh, restructuring uh, implication to the economy, to political systems, this climate uh, story may entail. I think we have to be positive. Um, you know, I, I work at the Design Museum, which is, I suppose, predicated on the idea that design can explore problems from multiple viewpoints and try to make things work better. And I think that's what design is. I think we've been talking um, this morning about the idea of mobility, transport from every aspect. It's about behavior. It's about technology. It's about aspiration. Um, and I think one has to work from that basis. My anxiety about the idea that unless we stop flying tomorrow, um, billions will die within the next decade, which is actually something that some Extinction Rebellion people say, is that I think back to Stalin's attempts to collectivize the farms, which produced mass starvation rather than a better world, which they promised. Uh, yes, and I... I that resonates with me, what you just said. I think there is, of course, a, um, a risk of, uh, of also not recognizing some of, you know, the, the real carbon emission statistics between different behavior. Um, and, um, and there is a risk of a certain uh, overreaction. But I also think, I mean, let, let's take a few examples where society have overreacted. Terrorism is a good one. Um, we are so far from overreacting to the climate emergency that that, at the moment at least, I uh, don't perceive as the real risk. My biggest worry in the climate context uh, is that we are um, pursuing strategies which will further, further alienate a vast proportion of the electorate uh, of our society because they feel on top of not having... Uh, being on the winning side of our societies, they will now have to carry the burden. And I think, uh, uh, by contrast, uh, strategies that will embrace progressive pricing, looking at um, how much individuals are already consuming, a more fairer burden sharing will be important. Now, with a lot of my academic colleagues, who, by the way, is the professional class that's flying most uh, the concern is uh, that they may lose access to informing debate, making uh, cultural links around the world, and all of those things are so important. But that's exactly the conundrum. Now, um, you talked about design solutions, and maybe back to the aviation industry. What's a business model that could help us really overcome some of those tensions? A business model and a design solution could be that uh, the offer of physical mobility which airlines clearly do, international physical mobility, is complemented by a sophisticated and real offer of virtual communication. 
where uh, on on certain occasions uh, that is going to be just good enough and efficient enough than uh, being flown over the... Uh, you mean business class Skyping? Business class With Skyping. With caviar brought yeah, to your in, desk. In beautiful environments, but most importantly, I think, uh, with technology that replicates the uh, the human interaction which we profit from when we are face-to-face uh, in, in the most direct way. Um, and I think that's an area where uh, future designers and technologists, uh, architects, software engineers... Um, have a real opportunity to contribute. Um, But I also don't want to entirely uh, dismiss the idea of uh, physical travel. It's a wonderful uh, thing that we have. I think uh, humans are uh, intrinsically excited by uh, moving about, experiencing the city. Uh, But what I am suggesting, and that's maybe coming back to the car, is that we really need to Uh, think harder about how can this experience of mobility and movement in the city be designed in such a way that it's not just uh, to the benefit of an individual uh, choosing to be within an encapsulated space, traveling at high speed maybe through an urban environment, but that everyone uh, is uh, part of that equation. You can uh, design mobility in such a way that just observing traffic flows and moving vehicles and trains and airplanes is a very pleasant thing to do. Uh, And I think some more consideration around the social side of the moving parts in our cities and the design of these moving parts in our cities, uh, some more thinking about this by the design community currently designing cars will be very important in the future. Philip, thank you. You're back to the central line. I'm taking my Uber back to the design museum. Thank you very much, Dan. That was a conversation between Design Museum Director Dayan Sujik and LSE Cities Director Philip Rode. This has been Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a DNN Co. project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded and edited by Sean Crook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And be sure to subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes and give us a rating and write us a comment. It really helps. Until next time.